theyeshiva.net. They tell an anecdote about a secular Jew who came to a rabbi and he said, Rabbi, I want to learn Torah. Can you teach me the Torah? And the rabbi says, it would be my pleasure and my honor. Come Monday night, 8.30 p.m. and we'll study the Torah. Rabbi, how much do you charge? The rabbi says, charge? What makes you think I would charge? God didn't charge me. Moses didn't charge me. I would never charge a student for teaching them Torah. He says, wow, what a rabbi. What a saint. What a special man you are. Great, Monday, 8.30, I'll see you. Comes Monday, 8.30, walks into the rabbi's study, sits down. The rabbi takes out two chamashim. One he opens in front of this man, one he opens in front of himself, and he tells this fellow, start reading. Guy says, I don't know how to read. I don't know anything. I, that's why I'm here. He says, a Hebrew lessons, $200 an hour. <laughs> our, uh, our theme this evening is going to be addressing the big question, who decides what's Torah? Who decides what's the will of God? How can a rabbi, any rabbi, possess that authority to say that this is the will of Hashem, this is actually Torah. Is Torah divine or is Torah human? Or is it unclear or is it a challenge of both? How can you trust somebody? Who do you rely on? Who don't you rely on? How did Judaism, in other words, develop over the ages, over the years? The Judaism that we have today, what we call Yiddishkeit today, 2016, Tavshin Ayin Vav, is that the Judaism? that the Jewish people had a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, you're saying no. Can you even, would they even recognize us? <laughs> would they even recognize the Jews? This was the question raised last week. There were those philosophies, those people who said, it's time to reform Judaism. It's time to change Judaism. It's time to advance Judaism with progress, with the ages. And the question is, doesn't everybody believe in that? Aren't there so many changes that were made to Judaism? And I think it's important to have a real intellectual understanding of the system of how Judaism developed. This is open for everybody to study, but this is what we're going to explore. Torah Shabal Peh, we began explaining last week in Basics of Amunah number 7. What we call the oral tradition Torah Shabal Peh is made up of five different parts. And these five parts are critical to comprehend. Number one, there's a text. The text is called Torah Shabbat The written text, we call it Chamisha Chum in English, the five books of Moses. But that text must have commentary. Any text needs commentary. Especially when it's an ancient language, no vowels, and no, no commas, especially when the entire text is cryptic, ambiguous, unclear, as I demonstrated at length, 
613 mitzvahs, there's almost not a single one that one would be able to fully understand and comprehend. Not only fully, even partially from the text. So one, ter- one element of the oral tradition is simply the commentary of the text that the author, Moshe Rabbeinu, who took a dictation, gave to the people. And to the point that the lecture, the oral lecture, was far more important than the written text. The written text in many ways is just a brief and concise summary of long, elaborate explanations and lectures presented over 40 years. And that, that commentary, that oral commentary has been received and transmitted, not in writing, but orally from generation to generation. And yet, the uniqueness of this commentary is it can all be found in the text. It's all present, implicit or explicit in the text. You can deduce it, you can discover it, that's how it was written. It was written in a way to include all of this commentary. And often here there are arguments. The arguments would discuss the question of how to find the commentary in the text. I gave one example. There was never a Jew who claimed that the beautiful fruit you bring on sukkahs, you shake on sukkahs, is anything but an asterisk. This was an oral tradition. There is an argument in Gemara Masech Sukkah. How do you know it from the words? There is an argument. There are four different opinions. How you know it from the words. So it's not an argument on the substance, on the message of the law, but on how you find the law in the text. There's a second element of oral tradition we call Halacha L'Moshe Misina. And those are the laws that accompanied the text that Moshe Rabbeinu communicated to the Jewish people orally. I gave an example. Tefillin should be square. Tefillin should be black. It should be written on a parchment, certain type of parchment. This doesn't say in Torah. And you won't find a hint in Torah that Tefillin has to be black, Tefillin is square. But nobody ever doubted that. And Tefillin has to have four portions. Shema, Vahoyim, Shemoya, Kaddish, Vahoyim, Kiviyach, four sections of Chumash, two from Parshas Boy, one from Parshas Veschana, one from Parshas Ekev. Nobody ever doubted that. They had a big argument about the order. Very famous argument, Rashi, Rabbeinu Tam. But, not in the basic structure and image and form of Tefillin. That's a second element of, uh, of, of Torah Shabbat, of the oral tradition. Even that can be found in the text in very, very hidden ways, but it was not necessarily explained. In this, these two elements of Torah Shabbat will not be arguments, because this was received. Moshe gave the commentary, and Moshe gave the halacha, the law. Unless they forgot, unless they forgot the tradition, there may be an argument. But if they didn't forget the tradition, in these two elements of Torah Shabbat, there's no argument. None of this was written. It was transmitted orally. I gave a few reasons. The main reasons are, number one, it's impossible to write everything. Number two, when you write a text, it can always be distorted. When you're giving over a live transmission, I could say, you understood? Say it back to me. A teacher and a student, there's an interaction. You see if he got it or he didn't get it. There's much less room for distortion, for misunderstanding. It keeps it much more intact. Plus you have the text to support it. Another element is the sense of responsibility. When you know that what your teacher is saying, you are going to be the one to transmit it. And if you don't listen, if you're going to become ADD, what do they say the acronym of ADHD is? 
attention deficit, hey donuts. If you're going to start thinking about the donuts or the cholent and the kugel, it's going to be forgotten forever. The sense of responsibility was created only through Teresh And perhaps one of the greatest reasons was it made it a live reality. It was a vibrant reality. Rebbe taught student, the student taught his student, the student taught his student. There was a living link, an immediate intimate experience that I am part of a living tradition. I am not just reading a text which is often lifeless, even if it's the holiest and divine text in the world. That's... Stage, that's the first thing we have to understand. Two elements of Torah But now there's another issue. And here we come to element number three. If the Torah is a manual for life, if it's the Creator's manual for human existence, for Jewish existence, as discussed in previous classes. In other words, one who accepts God's existence, one who accepts that Matan Torah happened, God wanted it to give the world, oh, tell them how to live. There are dozens, hundreds, thousands of laws, of situations, of circumstances, of questions that are not addressed, not in the text, and not in the commentary of the text. Not everything is addressed. There's so many different types of circumstances and questions that are not addressed. So what do you do? What, do you, what does God want there? What happened there? Also, there's developments History evolves the circumstances that didn't exist in the desert, that it didn't exist in that time. What happens in these situations? How does one figure out what does Torah say there? And even those laws that were given, there's so many different situations and details and nuances that were not transmitted. So the same God, the same Moshe Rabbe, dictating to Moshe Rabbeinu, addressed this issue in Parshas Shoift. Your first source... When you're going to have a question, when it comes to law, it's going to be something mysterious. You're not going to know the answer. Whether in issues of impurity, whether issues of civil civil justice, whether issues of uh, leprosies, there will be quarrels among your communities. So you'll come to the priests, to the Levites, to the judges, to the judge who will be living during those days. You will research it and they will tell you the law. You should follow that which they tell you to do from the place where God shows they should be. You should preserve everything they direct you based on the Torah that they will instruct you and the laws they will tell you. Do not move away from what they will tell you either to the right or to the left. This is a big Pasuk. And this Pasuk is the central, one of the central components of Torah Shabbat. We quoted last week the words of the Rambam in Hilchis Mamrim that this is one of the essential factors of, of, uh, of Torah. So when there is a question, you have what we call Bezdin Hagadl. Already in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, the Sanhedrin was established. 
The word Sanhedrin, by the way, is not found in Torah because it's a Greek word. Sanhedrin is not a Jewish word, it's a Greek term that was borrowed by the sages. It means a council, a committee of people. Moshe appointed under him 70 sages, he, whom he ordained. And these, or they ordained in every generation, 71 top sages. There were also smaller Sanhedrins of 23, Sanhedrins of 3, but the big Sanhedrin that was usually with the Mishkan or the Beis HaMikdash was, was 71, and they had the ultimate authority. So now you have a new law, doesn't say in Chumash, we don't have a tradition, we have a question, whether it's a law that we know, but there's a detail that we don't know, or it's a new situation, it's new circumstances, new developments, you go to the Bezdin Haggadah. But one second, God says, listen to what they're saying. What, based on what? They say, this is what we feel, this is our mood. Based on what? So they have to use their logic, they have to use their mind, they have to use the text, but they were also given a formula. What we say every morning, there's a methodology of how to interpret Torah. Thirteen ways of how to explain Torah. Thirteen middas. Until the last one, In other words, there's an exact formula that was given by Moshe Rabbeinu to the leaders, to the scholars, to all the Jews. This is the way how you can take the text, you can take the commentary of the text, and you can apply it to every conceivable new situation that we never addressed, not in the text, and not in the Torah Shabbal Pen, not in the Halacha Lamoshim that was given over. And here is where many, many arguments emerged. Sometimes there was no argument, but very often there is an argument, because here you don't have a received tradition. Here... You have to deduce, interpret, apply, compare, equate, distinguish, and people's minds operate in different ways. Here is where many arguments, when anybody reads Mishnayis, reads the Gemara, every page almost is filled with debates and disputes. In Halacha, Rabbi Shmuel said this, Rabbi Akiva said this, Rabbi Meir said this, Rabbi Yudha said this, Rav said this, Shmuel said this. Rabbi Yochanan said this, Rish Lakish said this, Abayah said this, Rav said this. What's going on? All situations that Moshe gave over, there's no argument. Abayah, Rav, nobody argued what an Esrug looks like. Not what an Esrug, what a, that nobody argues. What a Priyate's Hadar looks like. Nobody argued about that. Nobody argued that Ayin Tachas Ayin doesn't mean you blind somebody's eye because by mistake... They cause somebody else to become blind. It means a monetary issue, as discussed in number seven last week. But those issues that were not explicit, not in the text and not in the commentary, here is another element of Torah Shabbat. Throughout the generations, there may be arguments, there may not be arguments. Because here you're using your mind, you're using the methodology that was given in order to interpret Torah, in order to apply, to apply Torah. I should just add, it's interesting to add, when we speak about these 13 middays, they are extremely meticulous, extremely exact to the point that the Zoyar says that the 13 attributes of compassion, the Yudgimul Midas Harachamim, parallel the Yudgimul Midas Shatayr Nidrashas Ban. In other words, Kalvachaymer is not just Kalvachaymer. Kalvachaymer also represents Hashem, Hashem, Kale. 
Each one of these methods through which to interpret Torah has many layers, both legally and also spiritually. The Shalor, Rabbeinu Yeshaya Horowitz writes that the 13 principles of faith that the Rambam establishes parallel the Yud Gimel Midrash If you understand the 13 principles of faith, you think those are the 13 methods. So these are not just methods, you know, put together. They're extremely, extremely fundamental. It's a beautiful word from the Noyim Elimelech, Rebbe Rebbe Elimelech of Luzhensk, on Parshish Truma. He says, Rabbi Yishmael Oimer, Bishloish Esrei Midis HaToyre Nidreshes. When somebody professes the 13 Midis of compassion, then he could expound Torah. If you don't have the 13 Midis, don't open your mouth. Then the Torah will have value, the Torah, the Torah will have significance. Here the debates are found, here the debates are founded on people's perspective. And every one of the different sages had different perspectives based on who they are. All the arguments in Mishnayis, all the arguments in Gemara are not just arguments, I'm in a bad mood, I'm in a good mood, I'm serious, I'm light, I'm happy, I'm sad. There were Mahalchim, there were Lashitoses. Reb Gamliel had his way of looking at the world, looking at faith, looking at God, looking at Torah, looking at life, looking at history. Rabbi Akiva had his perspective, Rabbi Shmuel had his paradigms. And that's why you'll see there's sometimes dozens of arguments and you can trace them back to certain fundamental principles, if you can trace them back. Fundamental principles in philosophy, in theology, in psychology, in spirituality, in religion, and legally, concretely, concrete issues. This is what makes it fascinating. The Zoyar says Beis Shammai is usually stringent, Beis Hillel is lenient, because Beis Shammai's souls originated from the attribute of Gvura, strength, discipline. Beis Hillel's souls originated in the attribute of chesed, of love, of kindness. Which is true, which is untrue? Chesed is true, gvura is true. That's why the Gemara says in Masech Te'eriv and Dafyud Gimel, they argued and argued and argued, and Hashem says, Elu ve'elu divrelekim chayim. Both are the words of the living God. How can they both be words of the living God? Love is very true, and discipline is true. Both of these attributes and qualities are fundamentally true. They each have their time, they each have their place, Sometimes one must be employed, sometimes the other one must be employed. So this means that everyone who explained Torah and tried to apply it, used their mind, their soul, and that's how it had to be. This wasn't a mistake. That's why there's so many, so many different arguments. This was part of God's plan, but it's only when it comes to questions in Judaism that are not were not transmitted by Moshe Rabbeinu, not in the oral commentary, not in the halacha of Moshe Mishinai. It depends on people's logic. And hence there's different perspectives, different paradigms, different ways of looking at it. I'll tell you a beautiful vart from the Shoyal Meshiv. Rav Natanzani has a Sefer Divri Shol, an extraordinary idea. He says, the Gemara says, that why Lama Erevin, Lama Kavu Halacha Hilo, why is the halacha usually established like Beis Hillel? We'll soon see how they decided to establish who the halacha is like. But usually, in most cases, the law is like Beis Hillel. So you know what Chazal say? Because Beis Hillel, they were very relaxed, tolerant, respectful. When 
when they would discuss the debate, they would always say first the view of Beishamai before their own view. That's why that asks ask the Shoyal Omeshav a Gavaldika question. Tolerance is a beautiful attribute. Respect is a wonderful attribute. But what does that have to do with the reason that I choose the halacha to be like you? You're a nice guy, no question. But the question is, who's intellectually more honest? Who's intellectually more right? That's the question. I have no issue that Beishamai was a wonderful person. And the Gemara says, Beishamai was mechaditvei. Beishamai was sharper. The halacha should be like him just because Beishamai smiled and said, you go first. Here, you go first. Okay, very nice. Should get a nice shtikuloy l'mhaba for that. But why is the halacha like them? So he says a very powerful idea. He says, because Beis Hillel had the courage to listen to Beis Shammai's view and take it seriously. And therefore, their view became much deeper because they always had to crystallize their view because they took the other view seriously. And then they asked themselves, am I really right? Because they always quoted Beis Shammai first, their view, their position was far more developed. It became crystallized. It became powerful. That's the meaning of the Gemara. So in other words, it's not just the other view has legitimacy. I need the other view in order to be able to establish my truth. A very powerful insight for the next time you disagree with your spouse. Instead of getting upset, you should say, wow, let me really, really take that into consideration. And then you know what? Either you'll agree, or at least you'll have the opportunity to be able to see it from a a more grand, a larger perspective. Now, what do you do? So for generations, they're arguing. They're arguing. The first Mishnah in Brachas, till when can you say Kriya Shema at night? Moshe never said, they have an argument. I mentioned last week, what's the halacha with a renter? I mentioned the case when you have two canteens of water, one finishes his canteen, you have only one left, you have to give it to the other person and you both die, or you keep it for yourself and you watch another person die. These are just examples of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of situations that emerged and there were debates. So what's the halacha? What do you do? How do you deal? How do you know what's God's will? Each one has a point. Each one has a view. This is the great question. The answer to this is, Moshe put this into the text. When he says you should go to the court and follow their instructions, but what if they're debating? Moshe said, Achare Rabim Lahatas. It goes for a vote. And you follow the majority. And this is what used to happen. They would take it to the Besden, to the Sanhedrin, the 71 members, and they voted. If there was no argument, great. If there was an argument, you voted and you followed the majority. That's why the halacha became like Basila in most cases. It wasn't just impulsive. There was the vote of the Sanhedrin in those generations, whenever the debates were. And based on the vote, the Torah says, the same God who gave the text says, So this is exactly the system that was established. It was established by the creator of the world. This was part of the perspective, part of the plan, an element of Torah Shabal Peh that is decided by the members of the court based on the formula and methodology given by Torah. Based on the majority, that's how the verdict is established. We now come to the fourth component of Torah Shabalpa. 
What is the fourth component of Tayyar Shabalpa? Legislation. Till now we spoke about received commentary, received traditions, or the way they took Torah and applied it to circumstances, to new situations, to new problems, to details that weren't addressed. But there's another component of Judaism of Torah Shabalpa, and this is called legislation. This is not the judiciary dimension, but the legislative dimension. The same Torah gave the Sanhedrin permission to institute institutions in Jewish life, both positive and negative. When it says in this Pasuk, Do not move away from that which they will tell you, they will instruct you. Here they were given permission, granted, to introduce what the Rambam calls takonois and xeris, institutions and decrees, edicts. And this, the same God, through Moshe Rabbeinu, is telling the Jewish people, you should listen to them. For example, Hanukkah, Purim, washing your hands before bread, making Kiddush on wine, on Shabbos. The Torah says to make Kiddush, but doesn't say wine. Moshe never said to use wine. They said to use wine, to light Shabbos candles before Shabbos. The Torah says that on Erev Pesach, you got to eliminate all your chametz. And there's two ways you can actually destroy it. You could nullify it, you could make it ownerless. The Chachamim said the night before Erev Ba'asr, you have to physically check the chametz and physically get rid of the chametz. There are institutions that go back to the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, Kriya Satayra. Reading of Torah on Shabbos, Monday, Thursday, this is an institution that goes back to Moshe Rabbeinu. There's institutions that Yehoshua made. There's institutions that go back to the days of David and Shloyme. These are all by the Sanhedrin. Moshe was never told by Hashem to do Kriya Torah. This was his institution as a rabbi, not as a prophet. In fact, a prophet cannot add or decrease anything in Torah based on prophecy. The entire system of Judaism is only based on Torah, not on prophecy. If a, prophecy. if a prophet comes today and says, Hashem said, you don't have to put on tefillin anymore, or Shabbos is changed to Sunday, which is what somebody once did, that has absolutely no validity in Judaism. We spoke last week about the Basco with Rebbe Lezer, the Tan was completely rejected. Torah A prophet has no such power anymore. It's all based on the system of Torah itself. So therefore what happens? Throughout the generations they make different takonas. That's why when we light Shabbos candles we say, Baruch Hashem Asher of We say, Asher How can you say this? God told us to read the Megillah. God told us to light Hanukkah candles. God told us to wash our hands. Where does it say in Torah to wash your hands? It's not Allah Chalamayim The answer is, He told us to listen to the Bezdin Hagadol. The Gemara asks us, Hey where did He command us? He commanded us to listen to the Sanhedrin. If it's their institution, why are they doing it? Why are they doing it? Based on their conviction that this is necessary for the preservation and growth of Judaism. Perhaps the greatest institution which affects Jewish life constantly is brachas, blessings. 
they instituted three types of blessings that didn't exist. Birches HaMitzvahs, Birches HaNenin, Birches HaYira. Birches HaNenin means before you enjoy life, you make a blessing. You drink a cup of orange, you eat an orange, this doesn't say in Torah. They made Birches HaMitzvahs, before you do a mitzvah, you make a blessing. It says in Torah to put on tefillin, it doesn't say to make a blessing before you put on tefillin, or before you put on tzitzis. Or before you put on a mezuzah, it says in Torah to put on a mezuzah, it doesn't say to make a blessing. And then there's birches hayira, different blessings that you make. You see thunder, you see lightning, you hear thunder, you see a rainbow. And of course the greatest institution, the obligation to daven three times a day. Shachris, Mincha, Mayrev, the Torah says to daven, at least according to many opinions, but to daven three times a day doesn't say anywhere in Chumash. Nor did Moshe Rabbeinu command it, nor did he give a text. They commanded to daven three times a day, shachris, mincha. I should say two times a day, mayriv is a big argument among them. If they made it a voluntary, a minig or a chiyuv. But this was an obligation of the rabbis, of the Sanhedrin, of the sages. And they made the text. The Anshei Knesset Sagdoila, which is the Sanhedrin in the beginning of the second base Hamikdash. Ezra, Nehemiah, Chagai, Scharyah, Malachi, Mordechai, Zrubavel. The end, last one was Shimonat Tzaddik. They are the ones who legislated the text of Daviding of Shemayin Esra. They are the ones who legislated most 99% of the blessings that we have, the brachas that we have. So this goes back the beginning of the second Beis Hamikdash. These are all legislations. This is the legislative body. Why did they do this? Why did they do this? Who gives them a right? Who gives them a right? We saw in Parshas Shoftim. But why did they do it? And the answer is, their mission statement was to utilize their identity, their mind, and their soul to preserve Judaism. They felt as the generations are progressing, people need to have more opportunities for meditation, for awareness of the oneness of reality. Things that were taken for granted hundreds of years before. The existence of spirituality, the existence of God. That's why idolatry was so powerful. Because the concept of God was so powerful. This is all in the first Beis Hamikdash. Later they felt Jews need to be given the inspiration, the ability to be able to experience godliness, the purpose of life, the deeper meaning of life. So they institute the davening, they institute the blessings. These are takanas, but they also make zeris. Things that one does not do. For example, not to eat meat, not to eat chicken with milk. doesn't say in Chumash not to eat chicken with milk. This is the rabbis prohibited it. Another example, muktza. doesn't say anywhere in Chumash that you're not allowed to move around a laptop on Shabbos. Or you're not allowed to move around a pen on Shabbos. Or a calculator, or money, or wallet, or stone, rocks. Moshe Rabbeinu never said that. Moshe Rabbeinu said, you're not allowed to write on Shabbos in the oral tradition. He said, you're not allowed to build on Shabbos, but he never said, you're not allowed to move around bricks. You're allowed to move around bricks. The Chachamim introduced the concept of Muktza, and this goes back to the time of David and Shloimeh. The Gemara says in Shabbos that when David HaMelech passed away, it was on Shabbos, and Shloimeh couldn't move him because it was Muktza, and a corpse is Muktza. So that means in the time of David HaMelech, you already had the issue of Muktzah. You have a Ruvei Chatzeris, that you can't carry in an apartment building, 
or in a bungalow colony, even though it's confined with four walls because it's a semi-public domain, because many neighbors use the hallway, and you need what we call an Erev Chatseris. This is not a biblical obligation. This is a rabbinic zera. They said you're not allowed to do. Let's take the takana of David HaMelech, Yichud with Apsula. David, of course, saw a tragedy in his own family between Amnon and Tamar, on an illicit relationship and a rape, and David was, there was a Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin were Geyser, Easter Yichud and Psula. Meaning, not just a man and a married woman who's not his own family, but a, a man and a single woman, or two single people, no difference. Because of what happened, they made a decree, this decree is not in the Tanakh. This is a rabbinic, a rabbinic decree. Then there's other decrees they make for Tikkun Oilam. What I said till now was Tikkun Hadas, to preserve Judaism. This Tikkun Oilam. Hillel makes a decree that before Shemitah, before the sabbatical year, you can make a prusbal, meaning you give over your debts to the court, so that you could collect them even after Shemitah passes, because he sees a major crisis. Nobody's lending money to anybody else. Because the borrowers are waiting till Shemitah and everything gets cancelled. So he makes a takon of prusbal. He's not nullifying Torah. He's creating an institution using the power of Torah, using his power. They make a takana that ain't poidinus ashvuin yoysimidekidemeyen. They would kidnap Jews, Rechman al-Itzlan, and then ransom, they could charge. Who knows how much? The Chazal said, you're not allowed to release them. You're not allowed to re- liberate them from captivity for more than the normal price. Because basically, you're creating a crisis forever. They'll constantly kidnap. This has quite tragic ramifications even in these days. Even these days. So these are not laws that they're saying this is what Torah says. This is the meaning of Torah. This is how to explain the text. They're not explaining the text. They're creating new takonis, new gzeris. And they make it clear this is not biblical. They make it clear that it's rabbinic. They have to say it's not minat Torah. That's why there's no issue of the Torah says you're not allowed to add any mitzvahs, you're not allowed to deduct any mitzvahs. They have to make it very clear. So again, this is a fourth component of Torah Shabalpa. And here there are also many arguments. Should we do it? Should we not do it? Rabbi Yosef Aglili said, I have no reason to prohibit chicken burgers with cheese. I have no issue with it. The other rabbis argued. Here there's legitimate arguments. They're using their minds. Is it important or is it not important? Is myriv an obligation or not an obligation? The halach is, you don't eat chicken with milk, but not because it says in Chumash. In Chumash it says meat with milk, goat with milk. They felt that once you allow chicken with milk, it's going to be a slippery slope, you won't be able to preserve it. But there was a machlaikis about it. They went to a vote, they went to a vote. The vote won, no chicken with milk. The Rambam describes this beautifully. Take a look in Rambam, Hilchis Mamrim. One, two, in the middle of the page. Rambam Hilchis Mamrim Saif Perik Beis. Says the Rambam. Hare Kosov Betayra Leisavashal Gdi Bachalei Vimoy. The Torah says three times, don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. Mipi Ashmu Alamdu, we learned from tradition. What does it mean we learned from tradition? What does it mean not to cook a goat in the milk of its mother? First of all, maybe you have to pronounce it Bechelev Imoy in the fat of his mother. How do you know it's milk? Maybe in the fat of its mother. A sheep, yeah? You're allowed to eat a sheep in the milk of its mother? What about a cow? 
Can you eat a cow together with the milk of its mother? Or a calf with the milk of its mother? Moshe gave a commentary. This pasuk is prohibiting cooking and eating meat and milk. And he says both, because if it's not cooked, it's not prohibited, it's not a problem. It has to be cooked and then ate. If you cook it and eat it, it's a problem. Whether it's animal meat, whether it's a chaya meat, undomesticated animal meat. Chicken is fine. You can eat chicken. You can eat a polka with milk. If the sage comes and says chicken is permissible, we will prohibit it. And we will tell everybody it's our decree. Hashem never said it. We're afraid of a destruction, a churban. People will say, Why are you allowed to eat chicken and milk? Because it doesn't say in the Torah not to eat chicken and milk. So then you can also eat deer meat with milk. The Torah only speaks about then somebody else will come and say, even a mammal is fine with milk, as long as it's not a goat, not a gdi. I can eat a piece of steak, a rib steak with milk, even if it was cooked, I can cook it, I can eat it. Why not? I can eat a sheet lamb with milk, why not? Another guy will come and say, It says, don't cook the goat in the milk of its mother. But I can eat the go- I can cook the goat in the milk of a sheep, sheep milk, right? Or a cow's milk. Only its mother. Now a new guy will come and say, You can even eat goat meat with milk, just not of his mother, another mother. It's fine. So that's why the sages say we're going to prohibit all chicken with milk. We're not adding to the mitzvah at all. We're creating a fence, we're creating a syag, we're creating a fence, because the Rambam is showing how they felt people will misinterpret the real tradition, and there will be, there will be, there will be a churva. I was once teaching Masech uh, Psachim. So we learned the first Hoisvis. First Hoisvis asks, why did the Chachamim say you have to check Chametz the night before Pesach? I mean, I tell you, the bittel is enough. You just declare your Chametz ownerless. You're good to go. In the good old days, you know how long it took to prepare for Pesach? Around three and a half seconds. 11.59 Erev Pesach, you stood up and you said, all the Chametz is ownerless. Good to go. That's why they didn't have to go to hotels. Now, as a mice, my life room already with migraine headaches and etc., the children become the carbon pesach and dust becomes chametz. So the Torah says, Why they do it? He says, Shema Yavoy They were afraid that if you have the chametz there in front of you, even if it's ownerless, you might come to eat it. Now, you do bdikas chametz, you get rid of the chametz, you won't eat it. So one of my students said, Rabbi Jacobson, Come on, who's going to eat chametz? Nobody's going to eat chametz. I said, Look, you see how successful they were. <laughs> Look how successful they were. Because for 1900 years, Jews know you have to get rid of the chametz, so you don't even understand how somebody would come to eat chametz. Now you see how successful they were. You can't imagine why they would have to do it. This is called success. It's like in Chelem, they argued, 
What's more important, the sun or the moon? So then they decided that the sun is not so important. The moon is more important. Because the sun shines during daytime, so who needs it? The moon shines when it's night, right? So you know that the sun is doing a good job. He's doing such a good job, you don't even realize that he's doing the job. You take it for granted. This is what they accomplished. So we say, who's going who's gonna to eat rib steak and milk? We don't, we don't have. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. This is what they understood. Rabbi Yisrael had a different perspective. It went to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin voted, no chicken and milk. Sorry, that was it. So here you have what's called Xeris, or what you have, Ta Konus. So, and how is it decided? It's decided again based on the majority. So we had four components of Tarish Abal Peh. You're with me? Number one, oral commentary by Moshe. You could find it in the text, but it's an oral commentary because it's implicit in the text. Number two, laws that are not in the text. You can't even find it in the text usually. Number three, you have using the text and the halachas that we know and applying them to new situations. What would the Torah say about this law, about this detail, about this question, about these circumstances, based on the method of how to learn the text, the Yudgimul Midis, and using your logic here, there's many arguments, and each one has to go for a vote in Bezdin Hagadol. Number four, you have legislations, new legislations, either positive or negative, that the rabbis, the sages, have a right to make based on Torah, in order to uphold preserve the integrity of Yiddishkeit and the relationship of the Jewish people with God and the fulfillment of its destiny in the world. And here too, there are many arguments like Muktzah. There's different opinions about Muktzah. Yes or no? Basa B'chalav, we just gave an example, and so many other legislative issues, positive or negative, and this also was taken up for a vote. None of this was written. None of this was written. It was all transmitted orally comes Rabbeinu Yehuda Hanasi, and more than 1,500 years after Moshe Rabbeinu, changes the status quo. He authors with his friends a volume called Shisha Sidre Mishnah, approximately between, we don't know the exact year, but approximately between the year, some people say around 180 after the Common Era, and some say 220 after the Common Era. The point is, a full century after the destruction of the second base Amikdash, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who is the leader of the Sanhedrin, authors the Shisha Sidre Mishnah with his colleagues. What does he put into that book? All the four things I said. Number one, all the oral traditions that Moshe Rabbeinu gave over. Number two, all the laws he gave over. Number three, all of the new situations and details that came up that Moshe never spoke about. What disqualifies an esrig? What's the height of a sukkah? I mentioned before, what's the halacha, an egg that's born on Yom Tov? Go to any single, and go to any mesechta. Some things, there's no arguments. He just says it, this is the tradition. Sometimes it's new halachas, but there's still no argument. Sometimes there's many arguments, he puts it all in. Plus he puts in number four, all the gzeris, all the takanas, he has a Masechta Megillah that deals with the halachas of Purim and so on and so forth. So this is what Rabbeinu Yehuda Anasi does. Why does he do it? Even though it was forbidden to write it down, he does it because he realizes, the question is, as the Rambam puts it, do you amputate a leg 
or do you lose the entire patient? Rabbeinu Yehuda Anasi decides to amputate, to amputate the leg, and this is what Shisha Sidri Mishnah is about. It's not the only books that come out. You have Brises, you have Toiseftas that explain the Mishnah of the same generation. You have Medrashim that explain Chumash. You have what's called Mechilta, you have Sifra, you have Sifri, you have Medrash Rabbah. Then, a few hundred layers later, you have a Gemara. The Gemara was authored in the year 450 after the Common Era. So Mishnayis is around 180 or 200, and the Gemara is around 300 years later, a little less than 300 years later. What happens? There's eight generations of Amairayim, who, number one, are arguing what the meaning of the Mishnah is. You see that the written text always lends itself a different interpretation. They're arguing what the meaning of the Mishnah is. The Mishnah is a brief text which explains to us why Tayyar Shabbat wasn't written. Because even when it was written, nobody knows what it means. How many arguments are there in Mishnayis? How many arguments are there in Rambam? How many arguments are there in Shulchan Aruch? You, now you can understand why it wasn't written initially because whatever is written is never clear. There's always different ways of explaining it. So number one, the Amirayim, eight generations are arguing the meaning of the Mishnah. Number two, there's new situations that come up in the time of the Gemara. Number three, there's new developments. There's details of laws that were never discussed. In the middle of the 5th century, Ravina and Rabashi compile what's called Talmud Bavli. They do what the Mishnah did. But now they have another eight generations of Amirayim who focused on this for centuries. So now they put in all the new halachas that they used again, the text of Moshe, the text of the Torah, but applied it and it went to a vote. All the new Xeris, all the new Takanas, all the explanations on the Mishnah and sometimes arguments what the Mishnah meant, now it's all compiled in the Talmud Bavli, which is composed 100 years after a previous Talmud, the Talmud Yerushalmi by Reb Yochanan. This finishes the Talmud, but something else ends also at this time. What ends at this time? Around 450 after the Common Era. We're dealing here with 500 years after the Churban Bayesheni. Something else comes to a closure. And that is the Sanhedrin. The institution of Sanhedrin, of 71 sages, ordained from sages of the previous generation. Musmachim, ordained from the previous generation. From the previous, all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu, that body ceases to exist. The dispersion, the persecution, the poverty, the fear, the uncertainty, the insecurity, simply does not make it viable anymore. A new reality sets in. Now what happens? Communities have rabbis. Communities have great botedinim. You have some of the great, you have the Rabbanu Svaroi, you're going to have the Goinim, you're going to have the Rishoinim, you're going to have the Achroinim. Rabbanu Svaroi will go for another 200 years. The Goinim will go till the middle of the 10 hundredth. It'll end with Rav Haigon, and then you'll have the Rishonim. Rabbeinu Gershim, the Rimigash, Rashi, the Rambam, the Rajba, etc. The Ramban, the Ram, the great Rishonim, the Raiva. Then you'll have, in the beginning of the 1500s, you'll start having the Acharonim. After the Baal HaTurim, you'll start having Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Shulchan Aruch, and all of the commentators, and that will continue for generations. But you don't have any more a Sanhedrin. You don't have any more a central body 
that has the authority that encompasses all of the Jewish people, ordained from the previous generation of 71 people, all the way back to Moshe. And that changes, it closes the lid on a unique component of Jewish life. And to understand that transformation, we have to see the words of the Rambam. The Rambam, as usual in his introduction to Mishnah Torah, explains to us the leap, the change that takes over in Jewish life. Take a look, the last source, Hagdamas HaRambam Mishnah Torah. I'm going to read. Nimtza says the Rambam, Ravina, Rabashi, Vachavireim, Soiv Gdurli, Chachmi Yisrael, Amatikim, Torah Ravina and Rabashi and their friends are the end of an era. They are the sages who transfer and give over the whole Torah Shabbat. But what does he mean by Torah Shabbat? Everything that we discussed. Besides giving over, they were also the last ones to make edicts, to make institutions that ultimately spread to every Jew alive in the world. Any institution that comes after the Talmud, that a Bezdin makes for its community or for different communities, it does not spread to the Jewish people because of distance, because of the problems with travel. So therefore, you don't have a Bezdin Hagadol anymore that has the authority of the Jewish people. You don't have it. You simply don't have it. You don't have the smicha that goes back to Moshe Rabbeinu. You have localized authorities and therefore you will never compel the people of one country to follow an edict of another country. There's a major trend of beautiful, beautiful words of the Rambam. He says, you have to understand, all of the edicts, all of the institutions, all of the decisions, all of the applications done by the sages of the Talmud till the end of it, this was done by all of the sages of the Jewish people who were all involved. They argued, they debated, they voted. They followed a majority. This is the Bezdin Agadol that the Torah describes. You have to follow it. After that, it's a different concept. After that, there's a different reality, the Rambam says. You will never say that somebody applied the text to this situation and therefore it obligates all the Jewish people, even though that Bezdin voted and the majority the majority has prevailed. If so, you'll ask me the question, so why are we still arguing today? <laughs> so what are we arguing about today? If Bezdin Haggadal agreed on something, and they voted, and that was the majority, there's no argument. That's what the Torah says. If the Talmud agreed on something, that's part of Bezdin Haggadal, it extends till the middle of the 400s, everybody follows it. Whether it's a halacha, whether it's a halacha of applying the text to different details, a new situation, 
new circumstances, whether it's a gzair, whether it's a takana. The arguments that exist till today, and till today that you'll read about constantly, revolve around three things. Number one, what does the Gemara mean? <laughs> what does the Gemara mean? The Gemara says in Menachas Dafamad Gimel, you have to put a mezuzah kamin nagar. What does that mean? One man, one one view means means you have to it has to be vertical. The other view it has to be horizontal. So what do we do, like good Jews? We put it on a slant. They argue what the Gemara means. That's a legitimate argument. Different rabbis, different sages, different but they didn't have different perspectives. That's number one argument. Number one argument. Number two, new situations that the Gemara couldn't discuss. Am I allowed to use a microphone on Shabbos? The Gemara couldn't discuss it. There was no electricity. They didn't know about it. Can I drive a car on Shabbos? This is a new situation. Here I have to take the text, I have to take the halach, I have to take the mission, take the Gemara and say, what about electricity? Am I allowed to put on a light on Shabbos? Am I allowed to put on an air conditioner on Shabbos? Machine matzah comes out in the 1800s. Am I allowed to make machine? The Gemara couldn't discuss machine matzah. This is before the, there was no industrial revolution. Is it good to make machine matzah? This is a huge argument. Some rabbis say it's the best matzah ever. Some say, don't get close. It's the devil himself. Could you say, bring it to a vote to Bezdin? We don't have a Bezdin Agada. Now I want to explain to you another element that people often misunderstand. The Sanhedrin dissolved because they simply couldn't last and sustain itself. But it was also the salvation of the Jewish people. You know why? Because what happens if you have a Sanhedrin? And the Sanhedrin becomes corrupt. The Sanhedrin gets bought off. Napoleon made a Sanhedrin in 1807 in France. He wanted they should make new legislation for the Jewish people. For example, intermarriage should be fine. What happens if you have a Sanhedrin, they have full control, and it's a corrupt Sanhedrin? What happens to the Jewish people? Kaput. The uniqueness, the brilliance of the Chachamim was, we can't have the Sanhedrin like we used to have. Let's dissolve it. Now, the integrity of Torah will remain. Because even if there will be particular people who will call themselves rabbis or sages, and they may be corrupted, for whatever reason, intentionally, unintentionally, inadvertently, willingly, they may be manipulated, they may lose sight, they may be clueless. It will not affect the integrity of another community. It will never affect... Because what was sealed with the Gemara was sealed as Bezdin Hagadol. Now, you don't have any central body controlling everybody. You don't have a central body controlling everybody. Reb Chaim Brisker once said, he said, you know, the advantage before there was electricity, he says, if the candle goes out in one person's house, the candle is still burning in my house. When, we all, you, when we're all relying on the same system, he says, somebody shuts the fuse the central, the central circuit system in the city goes down. There's darkness everywhere. He says, in our times, let's keep the candles in the homes. He was using it as a metaphor because he watched the transition. That way your candle may go out, but somebody else's candle will burn. So this was a very unique moment. On the other hand, it doesn't have that power. It doesn't have that, it doesn't have that, that authority. You'll have a big question. This is mamish of our own this, this decade. You have what's called IVF, in vitro fertilization. 
This, the Gemara couldn't, the, actually the Gemara does discuss a very interesting s- scenario that's pretty similar in Masech the Chagiga. But here you have a question. Who's considered the mother? Who's considered the father? What do you do with this? These are new technology of how to be able to create fertility that was completely unbeknownst to people. Part of the medical miracles of our times. Here, there's big arguments, tremendous arguments. What halacha says? You can't compare the view of the Tzitz Eliezer to where Mordechai They argue tremendously. About electricity too, tremendous arguments. It was the view of the Chazanish, the view, the view of Rav Kook. Different perspective. Some say electricity is only Medir Some say it's Menatoira. Is it Havara? Is it Boina? Whatever it is. But these are serious, serious arguments. There's no Bezdin Hagadol. There's absolutely no Bezdin Hagadol. The same is true with Takonis, edicts. Take, for example, kidneys. Kidneys, rice on Pesach, legumes on Pesach. In the German countries, in Ashkenaz, the fields of wheat and the fields of beans, of rice, were in close proximity. They were right near each other. And they used to make bread from both. So they prohibited kidneys because it would be extremely easy to get confused and one could get mixed into the other. The Sephardic communities didn't have this issue. So they prohibited kidneys. It didn't affect the Sephardic communities. Here you have an example of a takana that became localized. But as the Rambam says, you're not going to force, you're not going to force other communities. And this is how the generations go. Then you have a fifth concept called minhagim. Minhagim are customs, traditions. Here too, you have minhagim from the time of the Gemara. The Gemara, the mission discusses places where the minig was not to work on Erev Pesach. It's a minig. Makim Shinago. You have new minhagim. Latkes on Chanukah. It's not a biblical obligation. It's not a rabbinic obligation. Using a ring to betroth the woman. There's no such a halacha. You don't have to use a ring. The Mishnah says, Okay, Bia was outlawed by Rav. So that's an outlaw by Rav. But you could still, do, you could still give, your, give your wife a, uh, a necklace if you want. Or a, or a dollar, or ten dollars. The Ramah says, no, go call Yisrael Kadesh Betabas. It's a minig, but it's a minig that spread to the whole Jewish world. It's a minig. He says it's a source, there's a source in Zoyar. Hakafis Shmini Atzeres, Simchas Torah. There's no halacha to make hakafis on Shmini Atzeres. Again, it's a custom. It's a custom that spread to the Jewish world. But it's a minig. It's not an obligation, it's not a takana, it's not a gzeder that the rabbis made. Additions in davening, different versions of davening, different nuschas of davening. The Ashkenazim start with Baruch Shomar. The Svarid and the Chassidim start with Hoidu. It's not a rabbinic obligation to start this way or this way. Saying Tachman by davening is a minig. Saying Karbonas before davening. It's a minig, it's not an obligation. Psukid Zimra comes very early already, Chazal. Baruch Shomar, some say, is the By the way, whenever you see a blessing, it's usually from the Anshei Knesset Agdoyla or from the times of the Gemara. There's not very few blessings that were added later. So when you see Baruch Shomar, Yishtabach, that means it's serious stuff. But there's no obligation to say Psukkah de Zimra, an institution of the rabbis. It's something that the Rambam says, they praised it. They praised it. That's Minhagim. So now, let's do a little experiment here. All of you together. Let's do a little experiment. I'm going to open up a siddur tomorrow morning to Davin Shachris. I want you to tell me, 
what is a Torah obligation in what I'm doing? What is a rabbinic obligation? And what is a minig? Okay, so I start Birchus Hashacha. Baruch What is that? Which one? Birchus Hashachar. This is an obligation of the rabbis. The earliest rabbis, the Anshiknes Sagdoila, instituted what's called Birchus Hanenin to give blessings. Right? We got it. I finished with the brachas. Now I start Matoivu, Adoinoilam, the Akeda. I say uh, the carbonas, carbon tomid. Some people say these carbonas, the ktoiris, Ezel Mekoiman, Abaya Haver, Bishma What is this? It's a minig. This is a minig. And there could be many minhagim. Different people add things, take away things. It's a minig. It's sacred, it's holy, but it's not a it's not an obligation. This is what's called a minhik. Psukhidh Zimra. I start Hoidu Baruch Shamar, Yihvoid Ashray, what is this? Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's not a clear Rabmeir Shapiro once said, Rabmeir Shapiro once said Azoi. He says the Mesnagdim and Ashkenazim Baruch Shaomar right away, and then they start with Mizmashir with Hoidu, etc. He says the Chsidim and the Svardim is Hoidu Lashem Kirivishmoy, and they argue this way, that way, that way. He says Void Hashem he says, the main thing is that by Yehi Chvoid Hashem Le'olam, they should make peace. They don't make peace by Yehi Chvoid Hashem Le'olam, then you have something wrong. So Psukah de Zimra has a blessing, but it's not, you can't say it's a rabbinic obligation. It's a little bit of a complicated sugya. It's basically an old and ancient minhig from the time either of Anshayi Knesset Sagdayla or the Gemara. What about the blessings before Shema? Huh? What about Kriyashma? Oh, finally, you have your Minatayra. This Moshe said from God. We have it in the text. Now, Shmoina Esre. This is a Dirabonon. This is a Chiyav of Anshik Nessus Agdoila to Davin. Shmoina Esre. What about Tachnon? A minute. Kriyasatayra Monday and Thursday? Moshe Rabbeinu. But it's not, but it's, this is already a takona, this is an obligation. Now you're going to come Pesach to the Seder. Start your Seder. Four cups of wine. Chiyuv de Rabbanon. Doesn't say in Chumash, Moshe never said to drink four cups of wine. In fact, he didn't like the idea of drinking. You know, the Misa, the mayor of a city comes to the rabbi. He says, I became a mayor of this city, I want to know how... The culture works, what Sabbath is, what holiday, sure. So he stays by the rabbi for Shabbos, right? So Friday night they make Kiddush and Shul, that was the custom. The rabbi drinks up the cup of wine. Comes home, makes Kiddush, another cup of wine. In the middle of the meal, you need more wine. Another wine. Some schnapps, a little more wine. Shabbos, a butter, what do you call a butter? A little more wine. Shine. Shabbos morning, so the rabbi goes out to call the people out from the Kiddush club. They should come hear this sermon. The violin takes up a little l'chayim. Then this Kiddush after davening is not a cup of wine. You come home with another cup of wine. And then after Shabbos, there's of course Havdal, is another cup of wine. So the mayor, the rabbi says, Nu, how do you like Shabbos? The mayor says, I do understand why you guys don't drive on Shabbos. 
what I don't understand is why you don't turn on the light on Shabbos, right? Okay. So the Dalit Kaisis, the four Kaisis on Pesach is what? Medirabanan. Reclining. Reclining. No, reclining. Mishnah Psachim, what? It's a chi of the Rabbanon. On Pesach you have to, but only the, the rabbis instituted you have to recline. What about eating matzah? Minatayra. What about morer? <laughs> it used to be minatayra when there were lamb chops. Now that it's on its own, it's only the Rabbanon. What about the kaira, the beautiful seder plate that people get OCD about? A minhig, three matzahs? A minhig. Telling the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? That's Minatayra. Speaking to your children and not ignoring them? Minatayra. Chadgadia? A minhig. Now take Shabbos. You come Shabbos to the house. Shalom Aleichem and Eishas Chayil? It's a minhig. It's a minhig. The Chafetz Chaim, the Chafetz Chaim wants... Comes home, he tells his wife, Kiddush, Yoy Mashishi, skip Shalom Aleichem, in the middle of the meal, Shalom Aleichem, whatever. So they asked him, his Rebetzin said, Vasepis, he said, I saw that the guests were hungry. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to do my Shalom Aleichem, I wanted to feed them. I wanted to feed them. Shalom Aleichem, I could do later. Kiddush, saying Kiddush, Minatayra, drinking the wine of Kiddush, no, that's a chi of the Rabbanon. It's an obligation of the rabbis. Lechem Mishnah to Chalas? Rabbinic obligation. Yeah, they found a source. They, they, it's an asmachta. They say you learn it from the man. But that's not a biblical obligation. It's about the man. It's not Lechem Mishnah. What about to have a meal, the whole meal? Meat and wine and, and, and fish and chalupzis. Chi of the Rabbanon. Not the chalupzis, but the idea of the meal. What about benching at the end of the meal? That's Daraisa. What about falling asleep at the table? <laughs> That's a very important minig Yisrael that goes back all the way to other Mauritian. You come here in Kippur to Shul. Everybody is very serious. Kol Nidre? Minhig. Kittel? Minig. The whole Nusach, all the Piyutim, all the Nigunim? Minig. Fasting? Shachiyanu? There's no bracha doiraisa. Only benching. A bracha is always with the rabban, Unless benching. Unless benching. Ah? Huh? So now, oh wow, <laughs> what? No, no, I know, I know, Yom Kippur, I know. I think it's important here. I want to bring out three points and conclude with these three points. Number one, 
what did it take for somebody to be in the Bezdin Hagadol? To be in Sanhedrin, or even in later generations, to become a person whom you're going to rely on, that if he would have been in those generations, he would have been in Bezdin Hagadol. So the Rambam, the Gemara, and the Rambam go through all the criteria, very, very loaded criteria. They, they used to send out emissaries to communities to find candidates for Bezdin Hagadol, the right candidates. But to summarize, besides scholarship and, and fear of heaven, and uh, the Rambam says, hatred of money, that's a big thing. I think there's two qualities that have to be emphasized. Number one, their absolute commitment to the text. The complete dedication to find out the truth of the text. Number two, absolute intellectual integrity. What the Rambam calls, Ahavas Ha'emes. The love of truth. If you don't, they don't have that intellectual integrity, the love of truth, there could be absolutely... No real trust. If they don't have a complete dedication, complete, complete dedication, infinite commitment to the text to know what is the will of God in the Chumash and in the Halacha that was transmitted orally, again, you will not, you will not be able to have this trust in Bezdan And to bring it out, I want to share with you here a story in the Gemara, which at first glance is a very strange story. It is... In Psachim Dav Chav Beis Amid Beis. The Gemara says, Shimon Ham Sunni. Va'amri la Nechemya Ham Sunni. Ha'yadoyrish kal esim shebetoyra. Shimon used to explain every S in Torah. You know how many times it says S in Chumash? <laughs> Around 20,000. B'reish is Baro Lekim. Es HaShemayim ve'es HaAretz. But it's an extra word. It doesn't belong there. B'reish is Baro Lekim HaShemayim ve'aretz. We all know Kabed Esavicha Vesimecha. Could have said Kabed Avicha Vemech. He explained every S. It was a big job. What it means, what it's explaining. Esavicha is Le Rabbis Achicha Hagadol. Respect not only your father, but also your older brother. Kivan Shigilas Hashemalakhatira Pirish. He comes to Parshas Veschanon. Moshe says you should have fear of Hashem, and he says, Esa Shemalakha. He could have said Hashemalakhatira. He quit. Pirish, he resigned. You have expounded thousands and thousands of esim. You spent a lifetime. You quit. Just like I was rewarded for explaining every yes, I'll be rewarded for resigning. I can't. The moment he read as Hashem he had a problem. Who are you going to add? You should fear Hashem plus who? This would be heresy. This would be Avaydazara. So therefore he quit. Sorry, it was a waste. I made a mistake. Hashem rewards me for my prisha. For my drisha, he'll reward me for my prisha. Came Rabbi Akiva and said, You have to fear also Tomidechacham. Shimon Amsuni couldn't come up with this. He felt you only fear Hashem, nobody else. What did Rabbi Akiva fear? feel? So you have a word from the Kotzke Rebbe, typical of the Kotzke, he said, Rabbi Akiva said, Even Talmidei Chachamim have to fear God. That's the Kotzke Rebbe. Ganz git. But what's Zayegit? You're going to use that one. Okay. But what's Pshat? What's Pshat? I want to show you the depth of this story. Okay? Let's give a practical example. Somebody spends their whole life 
trying to figure out a mystery in math, physics, science, and they fall upon something extraordinary, the scientific community recognizes it, and they're chosen to receive the Nobel Prize. The night before, they're traveling to Norway to receive the prize, which will put them in history. In the middle of the night, the scientist is sitting in his laboratory, and he realizes that he made a little mistake. To come out the next morning and say, Toisi, you got to be a fool. You're going to be this week on the front page of Time magazine. The number of times you're going to be mentioned in Google will go from zero to 16 million. You're going to be included in the lists of legends forever. Nobel Prize winners. Now you're going to tell people you made a mistake. You'll put it in your tzavah. After you die, they'll find out or somebody else will find out. But get the prize. We can understand this emotion. Shimonam Sunni spent his whole life explaining Esam. He came to one Pasek. He couldn't find. So what do you say? You say what everybody says. Tzarechiyun. Tzarechiyun. You change your whole life. 50 years down the drain, every yes you explained. One proud, you have one posik with a contradiction. Okay. Ibrahim said, So you have a question. That's not what he did. Shimonam Sunni stood up and he says, The S reveals to me that I was making a mistake. My life's work was futile. But you know what? It contributed to truth. It's fine. When Rabbi Akiva saw this, Rabbi Akiva said, if a human being can have such integrity, then es Hashem Rabbi Akiva wasn't arguing with Shimon Sunni. Rabbi Akiva was responding to Shimon Sunni. Rabbi Akiva could say it because of Shimon Sunni. That's why the Gemara says, Achibo Rabbi Akiva. It's not an argument. When Rabbi Akiva saw what a Talmud Chacham is, he said a person who's so selfless, he cares about nothing but the truth. And he's ready to jeopardize his entire career, his past and his future. Why? Because truth. Because God. MS. If this is what a person is capable of being, of becoming... If this is a Talmud Chachem, then es Hashem Because such a person, the reverence of this person is not a reverence of somebody who's egotistical, narcissistic, self-centered. This person who sees himself or herself only as a conduit, as a messenger, to be- reveal what the truth is, that's the only thing they care about. This is what you can accept. This explains to us, when you read the Mishnah of Gemara, you're struck by the intellectual integrity to extremes, to infinity. That's why this such a Bezdin Agadul completely committed to the text and the truth. Or in subsequent generations, it can be trusted because it has no agenda but one thing, to find out what the S is. To find out to find out what, what the truth is. Now I want to look at, with you at a Megala Amukas. Megala Amukas v'eschanan oifen ayin dalet. Megala Amukas was authored by Reb Nassim Shapiro, 
one of the greatest Kabbalists who ever lived, the rabbi, he lived in Krakow, and he passed away in year Hey Tov, 1640. I think it says on his Matseva that it's known that he had Gilu Eliyahu. This is the Megal, his works are something extraordinary. He has a Sefer explaining 252 ways of understanding the word Ve'eschanon. 252 ways. There, I saw this Megala Mukas. This is what he writes. Ilu nichnas If Moshe would have entered at there would not be arguments in the world. Because Moshe struck the rock, he hit the rock, Machloikas emerged. All the arguments that you have in Torah, in Mishnayis, in Gemara, came because Moshe didn't speak to the rock, he hit the rock. When you speak to the rock, you speak to the rock, the water comes out, the Torah comes out easily. When you strike something, it splinters into a bunch of pieces. This is the meaning of the Pasuk. The reason there's arguments among the Jewish people is because by striking the rock, now the Torah comes in little drops. Because it comes in little drops, it doesn't anymore come as waves, it comes as particles. So now everyone gets a different drop, and they see it in different ways. This is what the Pasuk means. My words are like fire. And then the Pasuk continues. My words are like fire. Fire comes together. Why are there so many sparks with different colors? Because Moshe strikes the rock, so sparks fly in all different directions. So now there's this perspective, that perspective, this paradigm, this. The patish is the stick of Moshe, the same gematria. He strikes the rock. It's not anymore one ace. Now there's many sparks. Moshe wants to come into Eretz Yisrael. He wants to, the Torah should remain cohesive. The Gemara says the main argument started with the students of Shammai and Hillel. Moshe's memshin, hey Moshe Shammai Hillel. This is the difference of the striking of the rock. What is the Megala Amukas teaching us here? That there's a, there's a process. In earlier generations, what was felt was the cohesiveness of Torah, the unity of Torah. Moshe didn't speak to the rock, Moshe strikes the rock. As a result of the rock, the sparks everywhere. And that's how Torah exists, and that's how Torah gets revealed. Hashem says, don't go into Eretz Yisrael. This is how Torah is going to be revealed through Elu, Velu, Divrei, Kim Chaim, different sparks, different dimensions, different perspectives. If you look above it, the Rambam says in his introduction to Mishnayis, the Rambam says, You can't hold the sages guilty for arguing. You can't hold them responsible and say they're guilty. Because Yeshua Pinchas, 
We can't tell two sages who are arguing to say you have to have the same mind like Yeshua and Pinchas in the time of Moshe. We don't have a doubt that their opinions are true. We don't say they're false just because they're not like Shammai and Hillel. Shammai and Hillel themselves had three arguments. The students of Shammai and Hillel had 300 arguments. We don't hold it against them. Hashem never told us that everyone has to have the mind of Yeshua and Pinchas. He did say you should listen to the sages of the generation. This argument is not because they made a mistake, they were hard of hearing, they didn't understand, or one of them is saying a lie. No. Their minds legitimately have different perspectives. This is what the striking of the rock accomplished. How precious is this for anybody who looks at it and how important is this to understand when it comes to mitzvahs. So here we see again the concept that the arguments were essential to the plan. They're part of the journey, they're part of the history, and the Torah gave the mechanism of how to deal with arguments in that generation until today when it comes to, when it comes to our generation. I want to finally complete with this last third point, and this is an insight that the Lubavitcher Rebbe once shared early years that I think is a very powerful and beautiful insight. Ultimately, why is it that the Rebbeinu Shalolam set it up that his manual for life comes about in three drastically different ways? There's Torah Shabbat that which is written clearly from Hashem. There's Torah Shabbat that which is not written. It's the oral tradition in all the different formats we explained, the four formats we explained. And then there's Minhagim, customs, traditions, which as we know is a major part of Jewish life. Somebody asked last week about doesn't say in Chumash not to drive a car on Shabbos. That's true. Doesn't say in Chumash not to drive a car on Shabbos. It says in Chumash not to light a fire on Shabbos. And when you put on the motor, most halachic authorities who spent their whole life dedicated to the text and to the truth of what Torah says, say that is lighting a fire. Are there different opinions? There are different opinions. But that's, for example, then he asked, does it say in Torah that you have to wear a hat and jacket by davening? Doesn't say in Torah you have to wear a hat and jacket. Doesn't even say in Torah you have to daven. <laughs> it says to daven, doesn't say shachas min chamayrif. Here you have a concept of minig. It doesn't even say in Chumash you have to wear a yamulke. Right? What's the, what is yamulke? I said the rabbonon or minig. Yeah? The Gemara says in Kedushin, Rabbi said, I don't walk four Amis without a Yamaka. How could I? The Shechin is over my head. So in Shulchan Aruch, the Mechabah says, Simon Beis, a person shouldn't walk without a Yamaka. But he doesn't say it's forbidden. It's not forbidden. It's called Midas Chasidus. Reb David Hoffman, the Shalsa Shuvas Malamed Lahoyal, says in Reb Shimshin Rafal Hirsch's school in Frankfurt in Germany, so by secular studies, the students sat without a Yamaka. That's Ken and the Yekes. Right? Now, the Hasidim would be abhorred by that. They would be repulsed by it. I'm just giving you an example. This is called Midas Hasidis. There's even an argument in Simon Sadek Aleph and Shulchan Aruch 
If you're allowed to walk into shul, if somebody walks into shul without a yarmulke, if you, if you have to protest or not. So it's important to understand this person says, where does it say hat and jacket? There's a, there, there is a development that's based on the system of Torah. But it does say in Shulchan Aruch and Simon Sadiq Aleph, I think it is, that Chachamim and Talmideyim used to daven me'utafim, covered. It does say in Gemara and Chum, the Kohen Gadol would wear a yarmulke plus his hat. It does say in Kabbalah that there's nefesh ruach neshama chaya yechida chaya is the yamaka yechida is the hat. So these are chumras, these are hidurim, these are minhagim. They're very precious, but you have to be able to distinguish. Distinguish. There's a system. There's a real system here. It's not people have moods one day hat and jacket. Doesn't mean somebody who's not davening with a hat and jacket is not davening chalila. You can't say that. But does it mean that a hat and jacket is meaningless? No, it's a hidur, it's a minig, there's sources for it, there's reasons for it, and so forth. So there is the system of dairaisa, dirabanan, and a minig. So we explain how it works, but why ultimately is it this way? And here you have an interesting thing. Hakafis, what's the happiest time in shul? Which time? Simchas Torah. It's not a dairaisa, it's not a dirabanan, it's a minig. It's not even brought in Shulchan Aruch. The Ramah brings a minig to do hakafas. It's a custom. What's the second to the happiest time in Shul? Purim. It's not a minatayr, it's a dirabana. When people put on tefillin every morning, they're doing a mitzvah minatayr, that's when they should start dancing. So you talk a dance. That's when you, you put on a mezuzah, start dancing. Hakafas, it's a minig. That's when the, mo, the, greatest, the greatest happiness is. Simchas Beis HaSheva was Nisuch HaMayim. It doesn't even say in Chumash. That's a Dairaisa, but Halacha L'Moshim Misinei doesn't say. So the point is as follows. There are three types of relationships. I'll give, a, I'll give an example in my own words to make it clear. Let's take a relationship between a husband and a wife. There's three types of relationships. Relationship number one is your wife asks you to do something and you do it. And you know what? It's a big thing. She says, please take out the garbage. And you take out the garbage. You don't say, I'll do it in the morning. I'll do it next week. I'll do it after I'll do it after the Seder. You do it right away. That's a big thing. She asked you to do something and you did it. A couple that has this relationship, he asks something, she asks something, and they do it. As we all know, in today's world especially, and I think in any world, it's, it's a great relationship. But there's a deeper type of relationship. What's the deeper relationship? She doesn't have to ask you. She hints. She gives a remis, she gives a hint. For example, you walk by a store, she sees something in the window and she says, that would have been nice to have. And suddenly the next night... You present a card, something wrapped up, she opens it up, and it's the tennis bracelet that she said it would have been nice and Indian in theory to have. Ah, this is a very powerful relationship. Why? Two reasons. First of all, the fact that you caught on to your wife's hint, that a husband should understand his wife, not only what she says, but what she means, is a miracle. It means that he's really in tune. But number two, it means you're not looking for excuses. 
Because if you were looking for excuses, you had the best excuse. Chanesh gewusst, chanesh Tell me next time. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know your hints. I don't know you're a Muslim. I don't know how your mind works. I'm not a woman. Next time, tell me and I'll do it. You had every excuse in the world not to do it. But the relationship is so powerful. You went ahead. You First of all, you detected the hint. And second of all, you went and did it. So we all understand that the second level of the relationship is far deeper and grander than the first level of the relationship. But then there's a third type of relationship. Third type of relationship is, she doesn't even have to hint. You yourself anticipate what she would have liked. And you go ahead and you do it. Ah! This is a real powerful relationship. Here, obviously you're not looking for excuses. Here, obviously, you're in tune with the other person so deeply. They don't have to tell you. They don't have to hint. You yourself know what they would love, and you go ahead and you do it. Now, let's understand. Where does one feel more love, more romance, more affection, more ava? Obviously, we're in the third one. But where are there more negative consequences if you don't do it? In the first. In the third. Okay, listen. I don't feel what you want. Sorry. I'm not a prophet. In the second one, I don't understand your hints. Tell me what you want. The first one. I told you, I told you, I told you a hundred times. Here the consequences are always much more severe. You get it? This whole experience you have in the structure of Yiddishkeit. In our relationship with Hashem, you have three dimensions. You have Hashem as our husband, we are the wife, or the other way around. Where the husband, the Torah is the wife, there's different perspectives, different paradigms. Hashem tells us, He asks us, He says, listen, I need you to put on tefillin, I need you to blow shoifa, I need you to fast the Yom Kippur, I need you to sit in a sukkah, I need you to shake lulav, I need you to go to the mikvah, I need you to eat kosher, I need you to celebrate Shabbos. Givaldik, Tayr Shabbat 630 mitzvahs. The wife goes and tells her husband, of course, and she does it. Then there is what Hashem hints. He never says it, he hints. Gemara says in Tainas Daftes, Lekemidi, Deloi, Remize Beiraisa. There's nothing that's not hinted to in Tayrah. You read the whole Gemara, what is it? The whole Tayr Shabbat, it's hinted. An extra vav, an extra hey, a gematria, an extra word. This parsha, that parsha, muktem, smuchim, loidorer, smuchim, hekesh. Avort, avort. It's basically, she gives you a little hint. And you're so sensitive, you're so in tuned, you're so dedicated, you're so committed. You detect it, and you go ahead and you do it. That's what the whole Torah Shabbat The whole Torah Shabbat is... They find the hints, the meaning, the deeper meaning. Whether it's the first concept of Torah the second, the third concept, etc. That's the Rabbana. And then you have Minhig, Minhag Yisrael. What's a Minhig? Hashem never said it. Hashem never hinted it. The Jew is so close, he or she imagines, Eshteltzich for he imagines, he anticipates what Hashem wants, and he goes ahead and does it. That's a minig. 
Where is the greatest simcha in Yiddishkeit? By a minik. Why? Because this demonstrates the love, demonstrates the romance, demonstrates the harmony. Hakafis, Purim even, also, the mitzvah de Rabbanon. Over here you have the greatest simcha, the greatest relationship, the greatest harmony that emerges. On one hand, we are the most negative consequences. Number one, when I tell you and you didn't listen, okay, it's mamish rebellion. But where do you have the greatest celebration? The deepest form of joy and intimacy, this comes out in the minute. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. But they couldn't do it. This also they couldn't do it. What if you can't do it? No. No, they would have to be able to be sitting together and learn together and study together and train students together. They didn't have it. They didn't have the circumstances. They weren't allowed. It was Hashem's choice. It was Hashem's choice. So there was a new type. Of, there was a new type of Ashba, obviously. Because they saw history. They didn't take it upon themselves. No, they saw that it's not sustainable. It's not happening. Why? They didn't have it anymore. It didn't exist. It got destroyed. So what are they supposed to do? The Sanhedrin. How are you going to continue it? You need 71 Dayanim. They didn't exist. What are you going to do? When did this happen? At the end of the Gemara says, right before the Gemara finished, the Gemara was coming in the four hundreds. That's when there was no smich anymore. There was no smich anymore. anymore the circumstances didn't allow for it. So they stopped dinning the fashas, but it still existed. The Gemara says already before the Churban, they stopped dinning the fashas, they stopped soita, they stopped certain things because it was Rabu uh, Hamanaf and Rabu Haroitzchem. But everything else, itself. yeah. Huh? But not on the count of itself. Not the itself, yeah. There were certain things they couldn't pass, in, so they stopped. Mari Beirav, Rabbi Yaakov Beirav. In the in the fifteen hundreds, the the Mari Beirav said that the Rambam writes in Hilchas Sanhedrin that even if you have no smuchim ishme peish, if all the chacham and Eretz Yisrael come together. And they ordain somebody, it has the gather of smicha, just like it's mipi Moshe. Ish mipi shad Moshe. It has to be all the Chacham Menech Yisrael. So Rabbi Yaakov Beirav said, let's bring all the Chacham Menech Yisrael. We'll be masmich, Rabbonim, and we'll have real smicha. I think 25 Rabbonim gave, 25 Rabbonim were masmichim. You had big, you had Rabbi Yosef Kari, the Beis Yosef. The Rabbach came out against him. He said it's a churban, and he fought it stark. And Mairi Beirav was, was musmach from 25 Rabbanim, and then he was masmach others, I think five others. But the Marabach fought against it, became a machlaikas, and then when he passed away, it just dissolved. Never worked out. Of the Talmud of Mairi Beirav, yeah. So it didn't work out. They wanted to be, he wanted to be able to do this. One of his times, he says, you're not going to get all the Rabbanim of Israel. You're not going to get it. So what are you doing? 
It's not going to be real. It's not going to be real. What are you making a machlaikas? Just leave it as is. So you won't have a Sanhedrin. You won't be able to be done. You can't be done. There's a lot of things you can't do. Rabbi Huda Leib Maimon. Rabbi Huda Leib Maimon. Huh? That's a few years ago. He's talking about in the early 1950s. When Israel was established, huh? This goes against it because if you make a Sanhedrin, like the same thing, it's corrupt. What do you have from the time of Sanhedrin? Yeah. There's an old joke, yeah? They asked where you're going to find a Sine Betza. So he said, Fagelt came in this Gefinna. Well, they say clearly. If they're quoting Madrash or Gemara, right. they're quoting that. Sometimes they say in their own commentary. The Madrashim are... Depends. Just like Gemara. There's, there's traditions that came down, and then there's their own Pirushim. All of Tarsh is a mix. But you'll still say Eilav 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 Because in a certain Pchina, right, of course, factual call me this way or that. So Big Machlech is when Yisrael came, right? Big Machlech is now, when the parish of the Mishkan was commanded. Before the Eagle, after the Eagle. It was said before the Eagle, it was done after the Eagle, it was said, it was, it was said already before the Eagle. Shachanarach, Haint. The Shachanarach is the Skabal Gavara and Bachal Tutsis Israel. Ah? Shachanarach? Ah? No, so every Bezd, Yedde Bezd and Yedish Tot is Makabal Shachanarach. The Mela Yedde Yedafis. Not because Tzvas is Machai of the Ganser Welt, because it was Nespasha to the Ganser Welt. You understand? Every Bezdin was Makabal Shachanarach. If not, not. No. It was big psakim, they're not mechayiv. Ashkenazim, yeah, kidney is the mechayiv, they're not mechayiv. The shulchan aruch, yeah, if the Ramal was thinking of writing a second shulchan aruch, Taka wouldn't have been a scum. The Levush wrote a different shulchan aruch, right? He wrote his own. Well, the Poyal Mamish, the Ramal, and all the Mefarshim chose to work with the shulchan aruch. And it was a real decision. Well, all the Bati Dinim of that generation, the Yid in the Svardisha communities, in Eretzisson, Ashkenazisha communities, in Poland, in Russia, the Bati Dinim, the, the, the Rabbonim, were Makabal the Shulchan Aruch as, as a Psak Din. Huh? You can argue, it's not a problem to argue. Everyone argues. That I'm argues this one. That's not an issue. Why can't you argue? Oh, you mean if, if, there's, if there's no machlaikas? If there's a machlaikas, then you don't have to follow. Of course not. No, okay. That's already a different Indian. When you're asking, why can I... Yeah. So just like the Rambam says, that when it comes to the Gemara, everyone accepts it. Why? Because it's Pashat Bechal Yisrael. Right? When the Tkufas the Ga'inim also, the Tkufas HaGa'inim finished, it was accepted, Bechal Tfutsis Yisrael, to accept Piskei HaGa'inim. When the Tkufas HaRishayinim finished, yeah, 
all the Bate Dinim accepted the Pesachim Pesachim Rishayna. They don't have that. The Shulchan Aruch, I never heard of somebody who doesn't accept the Shulchan Aruch. I never heard. The Reform don't accept the Shulchan Aruch. Yeah. How many years took that the Mechabah should be a... The next century. They said Rav Tano Pollock on him, yeah, but not a, not on fundamentals. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.